0: I'm Claire Parker and I'm Ashley Hamilton and this this is is
1: Celebrity celebrity Memoir. No, (laughs) say it good or don't say it at all.
0: I was waiting for you to say
1: it. You can't wait. Everybody has to go (laughs) paralysis through analysis, just like Quincy Jones. One, One, two, two,
0: three. three. Celebrity (laughs) Memoir Memoir book.
1: (laughs) I didn't know we were going to say and this is. You guys, this is a horrific beginning to what is going to be an incredible episode, I swear, because we did so much prep work for it. But as you can maybe tell from our lack of synchronicity, we are recording remote. Why? Because we're on some incredible exotic vacation? No, but because,
0: Ashley... I've caught COVID. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, you don't know about it yet. I am fine for those who are worried. I understand that it can be very serious in a lot of people, I luckily caught a very mild case of it through having fun.
1: Do we have anything else up top?
0: Yes, we do have one thing I want to say, and that is here at Celebrity Memoir Book Club, we make it a point to read these books with one goal in mind, and that is the truth. So if you are here for a page-by-page line read, we're not going to give it to you, but if you are here for Sauce Tea, sass, and a little bit of fun. Come on down. And obviously, my favorite listeners are the ones who've given us five-star reviews on iTunes. I will be reading the names of our reviewers at the end of the episode. And you can now rate on Spotify. So if you wanted to give us five stars on Spotify, I unfortunately cannot see the names of who rated us on Spotify. But I do know in my heart that I love you and also everyone who we were on their Spotify wrapped I am obsessed with you. And we meant to thank you a couple weeks ago, but I forgot. Thank you so much. And without further ado, Claire, if you were to write a memoir, how would you title this week's chapter?
1: Chaos in the Quiet. Sure. (laughs) Everyone has COVID this week and I don't. And I've been trying to explain to people what it feels like to not have COVID in New York City right now. And even though I don't have Snapchat, I imagine it's similar to when you have a really high Snapchat streak. I'm like, wow, I don't even care if I get it at this point, but I just want to see how long I can keep it going. I feel like I'm on a Temple Run hot streak. I keep saying I am legend. I just keep quoting I am legend. And Ashley's like, you're not quoting I am legend. You're just saying that you are legend.
0: (laughs) I haven't seen I am legend, but I'm pretty sure he never says I am legend.
1: It's weird when you're the only person who doesn't have COVID. It's a lot like having COVID in that I'm just alone. I'm just walking around listening to music, seeing if I can make myself cry. <laughs> I don't know what to do.
0: How fun. There is some good crying music out right now. I mean, Adele just dropped an album, for Christ's sake. You can't figure out how to cry to music right now?
1: Ashley, more importantly, if your life was a memoir, what would your memoir this week be? Who
0: are you? Okay. I feel like I've done a lot of reflection, a lot of thinking. Have you? Yes, some. Some. A lot more than usual. I know we did a end of year goals setting exercise a couple weeks ago where we thought about what we want to achieve next year. But I have had a lot more time to think and figure out what I like actually want and what I actually need. I feel like I had been acting a little bit chaotic in the last couple of weeks and it got me with COVID. And so having this time to really like sit in my house, I think it's been quite helpful. And I like blocked a bunch of people on Instagram that I think were not good for my mental health. I feel like starting by pruning your Instagram is a good way to start pruning your life. Do you have any concrete thoughts that you'd like to share with the group? I feel like I get really caught up in the things that I think look good on paper and not necessarily the things that I think are good in real life. Speaking of life's journey, that's a fucking nuff of mine. Should we enter maybe the greatest story of the millennium?
1: Where there's a will, there's a way. And in this way, there's a book. And this book got in the way of my joy this week. Shall we dive into Will Smith's eponymous book, Will? Will? Me. Willard Carroll Smith, the second, his Wikipedia is actually wrong. It has him listed as Willard Carroll Smith Jr. But very specifically, he's Willard Carroll Smith. The second
0: he hates to be called junior
1: was born September 25th, 1968, which makes him 53 years old to the day. And this book, of course, will did come out this year. It actually came out a few weeks ago, really.
0: Yeah, this might be one of our speediest turnarounds and let me tell you what, I'm never rushing to one of these bitches again. This book opens with a story about when he was nine years old and his dad asked him to build a wall, not asked, told him to build a wall in front of his store. Him and his younger brother Harry had to build this giant wall. It took them a year to lay brick by brick. He tells this story of tenacity to just give an overview of who he is and why he has his name. He said, my father gave me my name. He gave me his name and he gave me my greatest advantage in life the ability to weather adversity he gave me will
1: lowercase w so he has the will to be will to stay will this preface, The Wall, sets up not only what Will Smith thinks is his greatest character trait, which is a work ethic, but it also sets up his father as the strong leader who gave him the discipline that took him to be the greatest movie star of all time.
0: One thing about this book is that there is nothing if not detail. We know a lot about who daddy is. He calls his dad daddy and his mom is called Mom-Mom, and he never refers to them as anything other than daddy and Mom-Mom. It does not roll off the tongue.
1: So that's the preface. And then chapter one, the very first page of book itself opens with, when I was nine years old, I watched my father punch my mother in the side of her head so hard that she collapsed. I saw her spit blood. That moment in that bedroom, probably more than any other moment in my life has defined who I am today.
0: And then should I jump right ahead to the bottom of the page? My father was my hero. He's not saying my father was my hero and that changed on that day.
1: His dad remains his hero. So this whole book and how he defines himself is set up on the central premise of his father gave him the discipline and the drive to become as successful as he is today. But at the same time, he gave him his greatest insecurity, which is that, that he's a coward. What you have come to understand as Will Smith, the alien annihilating MC, the bigger than life movie star, is largely a construction, a carefully crafted and honed character to hide the coward. So, his great insecurity is that he is a coward. And this is because, as the oldest of the three children that his mother and father had, he never stood up to his father. He remained under his father's thumb for the entirety of, honestly, his life, whereas his little sister often escaped. And then his little brother, Harry, often stood up to his father. Throughout their very violent and tumultuous upbringing, Will never once protected his mother, and he's deeply ashamed of that. And so the rest of his personality, he says, comes from this. As a child, I told myself that if I kept Daddio entertained and made him laugh, then he wouldn't hurt my mother. But that fantasy only caused me to feel like a coward, an unworthy son, and despite the fact that none of it was my fault. So this really sets up who he is. He grew up a middle-class boy. He says by the time he was two, they had moved into a house they owned. His dad actually owned a very successful refrigeration and ice company. His mother had gone to Carnegie Mellon and graduated from there. One of the first Black women to ever graduate from that university, which is so impressive. So he came from... I don't want to say stable because, of course, there was obviously a ton of violence and abuse in the household physically. But he did come from a financially stable background where he always had a home. He had two parents who were present, even if they weren't always together. He went to private school up until high school.
0: My father was violent, but he was also at every game, play, and recital. The same intense perfectionism that terrorized his family put food on the table every night of my life. He acknowledges the toxicity sort of. While he never learned to overcome his own demons, he would cultivate in me the tools to confront my own. He really twists every story into a lesson that his dad was trying to teach him. And it's never the fact that his dad was abusive.
1: When I think to my childhood, I visualize my father, my mother and Gigi, his grandmother arranged as a philosophical triangle. My father was one side of that triangle. Discipline. He taught me how to work, how to be relentless. He instilled in me an ethic that it's better to die than to quit. My mother, education. She believed that knowledge was the irrevocable key to a successful life. She wanted me to study, to learn, to grow, and to cultivate a deep and broad understanding to either know what you're talking about or be quiet. Gigi, his grandmother, was love. Whereas I tried to please my mother and father so I wouldn't get into trouble, I wanted to please Gigi so that I could bathe in that transcendent ecstasy of divine love. These three ideas, discipline, education, and love, would fight for my attention throughout the rest of my life.
0: He creates a lesson in everything. So from his mom, he creates this lesson in strength. The idea that he could hit her body, but somehow she was in control of what hurt her. I wanted to be strong like that. Your mom was strong in that she survived this and eventually got away, but... It's not like some beautiful life lesson in like what we should all be like. This shouldn't have been happening
1: in your home. It's interesting that he associates strength with the ability to disassociate from your own emotions. Yeah. Because of what was going on at home, this is where his obsession with entertaining and being funny comes from. Living in that kind of household where things could change at the drop of a hat made me very in tune emotionally with how people were feeling and the different frequencies people were giving off. And he started to become funny. And he says he was a very like weird, eccentric little kid he had an imaginary friend named magiker who was like viscerally real to him until he was 13 years old
0: there are a lot of little eccentric stories about his childhood that he tells he wanted to be popular he wanted to be known and like mainly he wanted to get girls but he was never doing what was cool at one point he was obsessed with cowboy boots and he wore cowboy boots every single day even to play basketball which is just a bad idea because it's dangerous
1: he was very much like a little kid who was lost in his own fantasies and had no problem with that. But he was an entertainer. I began to perform all the time. It gave me the warmth of affection, but behind the protection of a mask. It was perfect. I could hide myself and be lovable at the same time, mitigating the risk of vulnerability, but gaining everything. By high school, he learns about hip hop.
0: Which was literally brand new at the time. He becomes obsessed with the idea of MCing, and he wants to become the best MC there ever was. And he begins feverishly writing raps in his little notebook, practicing them at night. And then he would show up at school and act like he was improvising them and became known as one of the best MCs in town.
1: And he took it extremely seriously. And from the cocoon of a bullied, awkward kid emerged a natural-born killer MC. So he becomes obsessed and he pairs up with this guy in his school who's known as being the best beatboxer named Ruddy Rock. And he becomes obsessed with practicing every day. Nobody really wants to practice as much as Will does. So Will is constantly seeking out friends and peers that are at his level of discipline. He becomes friends with this group of older kids called the Hypnotic MCs. And he starts hanging out with them. He goes, I took my role in the Hypnotic MCs very seriously. I attacked it with the discipline daddy Yo had instilled in me. But back then, I hadn't learned yet that most people didn't have the same work ethic as me. I wanted to rehearse every day on a specific schedule. They were looking at it more casually. I was getting frustrated. Nobody wanted to grind and go get it. My work ethic and constant pushing slowly drove a wedge between me and the group. They resented me for always bugging them and ruining what to them was just supposed to be a fun hobby. I resented them for not putting the effort in to make this thing as good as it could possibly be.
0: And it was a fun hobby. There weren't really high school kids getting careers in rap music at this point. His goal was overall be the best. That's it. So he did have a history in music. He took a piano class and had a recital at church. It was something that Gigi, his grandma, was really excited about, and he had an eye on her the whole time. And while he was playing, he says the words pride or approval are pale and inadequate. I can only say that I have been chasing that look in the eyes of every woman I've ever loved ever since. I've never felt more certain of someone's adoration. So in this piano recital, the way his grandma is looking at him becomes his gold standard for, like, the feeling he is chasing. The approval of a grandma is like the only thing that's ever mattered to him. I don't know, man. I think you could have really bombed that recital and your grandma still would have loved you. That's what grandmas do.
1: He's with the hypnotic MCs. He gets frustrated with them for not taking it as seriously as he did. One of the ideas he had had was they all pooled their money to get a new stereo so that they could record their mixtapes quicker. When he finally left the group, he just destroyed the stereo. But I feel like this is a really important first example of an outburst because he has two axioms that he picks up from his father that control the rest of his life. And one is 99% is the same thing as 0%. And the other is, when there's two people in command, everybody dies. So for these people to only be practicing sometimes to him was as good as never practicing. And when they didn't fall in line to him, everything was going to be destroyed. He believes that there should be a leader and either he is going to respect the leader or everybody will respect him as a leader or else everything is going to go to shit, potentially at his own hands.
0: He's constantly obsessed with this happy-go-lucky, like, bringing joy to everyone around him energy. But it's not the energy he provides. He provides, like, an ice-cold intensity. And if things don't go his way, he flips the fuck out and then never acknowledges that freak out. He'll hide from anyone. This is the cowardice coming back. He really hypes up his comedic abilities here. When it comes to emceeing, he says that he was funny. He had punchlines at the end of every verse and that was what really set him apart and that's what we see start to carry over as he begins taking seeing even more seriously than he already was.
1: Senior year of high school, he meets somebody who is beginning to get a name for himself in Philadelphia as the best DJ around. And it is DJ Jazzy Jeff. So DJ Jazzy
0: Jeff is the first person he's ever met who has the exact same level of intensity as him.
1: He actually even says Jeff was the first friend I'd ever had who plain and simple outworked me. DJ Jazzy Jeff had a turntable set
0: up in his mom's basement and would just spend 18 hours a day in the basement scratching, practicing, working on beats. So Will now had this place he could go where someone was constantly working together. They teamed up and they started taking over the town. They started putting together some songs. They started getting some performances on the books.
1: Our rise in the Philly hip hop scene was nuclear. We had done every show we could. Block parties, school dances, proms, basement parties, birthdays, fundraisers, and church parking lots. You name it, we did it. This was early in 1986. And he says Jazzy Jeff was like one of the most cutting edge DJs of all time. He claims he's still one of the greatest. I don't know a ton about hip hop. I don't think you do either, right?
0: No. I also think that he was probably the greatest at that type of DJing which I don't think is hyper relevant anymore
1: at the time he was super talented and in 1986 after they team up they go into New York City and he wins the battle for world supremacy which is a DJ competition Jeff was flawless that night and when all was said and done the 1986 world supreme DJ was a kid who spent most of his life in a basement in southwest Philly my DJ DJ Jazzy Jeff DJ Jazzy Jeff I guess we could stop calling him his full name I think we could call him Jeff no I don't know Jeff DJ Jazzy's Jeff was three years older than Will. So he was out of high school at this point and like allowed to do whatever he wanted in his mom's basement. Will was still a senior in high school.
0: So after this DJ competition, they end up getting approached by a Philadelphia record producer who it turns out is just like a guy.
1: A guy whose brother is a record producer. So he has a name that people associate with the music world, but he himself actually has nothing to his name.
0: So Dana Goodman gets them to sign a contract. He is their label now. I guess. He's just a guy who decides he is a record label. They put out a song. One of the songs is called Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble. And it ends up on the radio by Will's senior year of high school. So he is starting to have some success in the music business. He's getting noticed by the industry, even though the industry is just this guy. And he tells his parents that he is not going to college. And this is a huge fucking deal because all his mom cares about is education. And she has an absolute meltdown. At this point, his mom and dad are not living together. His mom had finally left his dad his freshman year of high school. And they get together and decide that Will will have a year to prove himself after high school before he has to go to college. They also have some other friends from the neighborhood James Lasseter was DJ Jazzy Jeff's really good friend who would just kind of come sit in the basement and hang out with them while they practice. One day they have to send a fax for something and James, who's just sitting in the corner, is like, oh, I do have a fax machine. And he becomes their manager for simply owning a fax machine, which I think is really funny because he proves himself to actually be a very talented manager.
1: Something about Will, and I will I will give him credit for this, is he will give anybody a shot. If you have the work ethic he has, he'll keep you on. And if not, you get dropped. If he met you day one, he'll keep you for the rest of his life if you rise with him. So JL, as they call him, is now their manager. Dana Goodman is now their record label. They have a song that went out in March by May eighty six. It's getting a lot of radio play in the Philly, New Jersey, New York area. And in June 86, Will graduates from high school. Because he's been given the Scapier gift by his parents to be allowed to go and pursue music and see how it goes, they start going on tour. They get a tour bus and they go on a rap tour where they're opening for Public Enemy and two live crew. It's all boys from the neighborhood. He's got, obviously, Manager JL, DJ Jazzy Jeff... And then he's also got Omar, who's a kid he grew up with, who used to be pigeon-toed. And then he got a corrective surgery and somehow became the fastest kid in town and the best dancer. I love that this group of guys had one dancer in the back. Like, I cannot imagine what that looked like on stage. You got a DJ, an MC, and then just like one dude in the middle moving around. (laughs) I guess I just feel like you need at least two. You only need one Omar. Ready Rock was also
0: with them beatboxing. And then they had this guy, Charlie Mack, who was their security, which just means he's the biggest guy they knew. And they were like, you come with us and be security.
1: On this tour, we begin to see the blossoms of the I'm the leader or we all die Will Smith leadership mentality. So he in high school had a girlfriend named Melanie Parker. Shout out to the Parkers. And he was obsessed with her.
0: He, a lot of times throughout this book, defines the way he views relationships and what he thinks is important in a relationship. My fantasies as a teenager never involved having multiple girlfriends or wild orgies. My fantasies always involved one woman. I wanted to ravish her with my complete, undivided devotion and affection. I wanted to be the best man she's ever known. I wanted to fulfill all of her dreams, solve all of her problems, take away all of her pain. I wanted her to adore me. I wanted to be so trustworthy and emotionally reliable that I would cleanse her impression of all men.
1: From the day I met her, Melanie had been the center of my life. Healing the pain of her trauma became my constant preoccupation. The look in Melanie's eyes became the substitute for Gigi's approval. I've always needed a woman to achieve for. When I performed, I was now performing for Melanie. She was happy that meant I was a good person. Mm -hmm. If she was unhappy, that meant I was a monster. So because of this, he's on tour and he decides that nobody's allowed to have girls around.
0: He says no girls on the tour bus, in the hotel, or backstage. And they're like, when do we fuck then? And he's like, never. (laughs) I have a girlfriend. We
1: all have one girlfriend. You know that old adage, if your homie is sleeping with someone, that means you're cheating. (laughs) (laughs) This is the beginning of his favorite phrase. One of the things Gigi instills upon him is that you should never curse. The way he works around any and all curse words, dirty words, questionable words, instead of calling himself a slut or a play or anything... He uses the phrase ghetto hyena a lot to mean somebody that's having a lot of sex with different people. And listen, I'm not here to police a black man calling himself ghetto. That is his prerogative. But I will
0: police hyena.
1: You cannot just suddenly use hyena as a word that means slut. Let me actually Google it and make sure that I'm not alone. I've never heard that in my life. I'm not seeing anybody use hyena to mean slut. But he uses it often. And he will not have his group of rappers be hyenas.
0: No, he has no interest in that. So they're on tour. They're having a great time. They are found by Russell Simmons, one of the co-founders of Def Jam Records, who apparently had been trying to get in touch with them through Dana, their one-man label, for ages, and Dana hadn't been returning their calls. They try to put together a deal because at this point they're touring, but their record is still being sold only out of Dana's trunk in Philly. (laughs) They're on the road. They're making a name for themselves. There's no record to be found. So they try to get Dana to come with them to Def Jam and Dana thinks that he's being scammed or something and refuses to do it. And this is one of the early times that we see Will try to bring someone with and that person refuses to do it. But the way he writes about it is a little tough for me to take in. He says, it's so painful when people I care about miss the opportunity to elevate. I've been in this situation maybe 50 times in my career. I'm trying to climb and fly as high as humanly possible and I want to take the people I love with me. But invariably at critical moments when the necessity to level up presents itself, some people like JL rise to the occasion and others fold. JL here, who's their manager, Manager basically is like, yes, that's such a good idea to go with fucking Def Jam Records. The deal that we should strike is that I get a job at Def Jam Records. They have to teach me everything they know about managing. You guys sign with Def Jam Records, and I'm your account manager. And then there's really no place for Dana in this deal.
1: They finally find a workaround where because they had signed a contract, they sign with Jive Records as their European distributor. But then what they do is with all the money that Jive has, they do a remastered album. And then resell it as a European import, the better version. But
0: then when Dana tries to fight them on this, they realize that the contract that Will signed with Dana, he signed when he was 17 years old, which makes it technically null and void. And so now Dana loses everything entirely.
1: So that first album, Rock the House, when sold through Drive, ends up going gold. It does very well. They're psyched. They're 83 on the Billboard Hot 100 They then get incredible equipment. They obviously get top-of-the-line studio space for six weeks in London. The whole team goes out there. He says they've never worked harder. They were eyes on the prize, spewing out music. In six weeks, they come up with their next album. It's a double album, which is huge. He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper, comes out in March of 1988. It is huge. They end up winning a Grammy for it. It's the first ever Grammy in a rap category and they don't even show up. They don't go because it's not going to
0: be on TV. The whole rap community has boycotted it because they don't feel like the category is being treated with respect.
1: Something insightful that he gives us is when he signed with Russell Simmons. He basically
0: calls him and Jeff the battering rams. Russell Simmons was orchestrating the global deconstruction of all barriers to hip hop and me and Jeff were one of his battering rams. We were the clean group, the respectable group for Russell. We were the perfect weapon against all naysayers. We were the tip of the spear. They were like the digestible family-friendly rappers that could create space for real rappers in the mainstream. (laughs) They were basically the
1: gateway drug.
0: So things career-wise have never been better. They're so famous. They're doing so well. Things with Melanie back at home and not so good. He comes home one weekend because he's on the road all the time. And his alerts are up. He's like, something is going on. Her kisses felt less like affection, more like something she thought she'd better do if she was going to successfully hide the fact that she'd fucked somebody. So he accuses her of fucking someone. She doesn't
1: deny it. And I just stood there numb. When somebody cheats on you, you have to do something. But what? I didn't feel any emotions, but I was not going to be a coward. Not this time. So what does he do? Even though he claims he didn't feel anything. He calmly picks up an iron pointy thing
0: and he carries the iron pointy thing towards the front door and begins to knock out all the windows one by one. And then he walks home and collapses into his mother's arms and cries. He says, how could she do this, mommy? Why did God let this happen? So two things happen here. One, he was not, in fact, numb. He was doing another act of violence Two, he went from being violent and crazy to pathetic as fuck in the span of one walk. I just, like, don't understand how he thinks he doesn't have feelings.
1: It seems so strange to me to break things because I thought I should, not because I was at all emotionally impelled to do so. This discordance was hilarious to me. Out of nowhere, I began to chuckle. Replaying the scene in my mind, I was thinking, Will, you're an absolute lunatic. And it made me laugh even more. The whole shit was hysterical. I guess. You actually do have to be so like clinically fucked in the head to be like, anyway, I set a house on fire because I felt nothing. (laughs) One of the greater questions I think we all have about the Smith family at this point in time is why are they acting the way that they're acting? Why are they telling us anything? As we will see in this book, he is the biggest movie star at the turn of the century. It was the millennium. He was huge. They're so successful. They have everything you think anybody could want. Why are they acting like Gabby (laughs) Hanna?
0: So you mentioned to me that... He has a
1: humiliation
0: kink, potentially.
1: Somebody close to Hollywood said, the sense is he likes to be publicly humiliated because it gets him off. And that is the only thing I can think. Because why else would you write, how could she do this to me? Mommy, why did God let this happen? He is, I think, 20 years old at this point and weeping into she his She picked me up and took me home. Your mother picked up a 20-year-old Grammy-winning rapper and <laughs> carried you home? Like that goddamn book where she's like, however old you are, my baby, you'll be? Yeah. <laughs> That is what he's doing here. And I'm gagging. You deserve to get cheated on. I hope you're getting cheated on right now. And I hope you don't like it. Who is August is all I'll say. I don't even think there is an August. She just was like, oh, you cuck. You like that? You cuck. (laughs) Stop it. So what
0: happens now is that he goes on an actual sex spree. The rules of no fucking on tour are out the window. He says, I had sex with so many women and it was so constitutionally disagreeable to the core of my being that I developed a psychosomatic reaction to having an orgasm. It would literally make me gag and sometimes even vomit. So this is the headline that really made the rounds about this book. And I'm assuming it's because this happens on page 141 and I'm... I guess going to believe that none of the people who had to review this book made it past 142 because a lot of other stuff happens in this book. But this was really a breaking point for me. I was like, shut the fuck up, dude.
1: The weird thing is I read that line knowing it was coming and I felt so underwhelmed by it because I guess my idea was that when this had happened to him, he had been at the end of like 20 years of having sex. It was like a weekend. Yeah, it was one long weekend because pretty quickly he gets back together with Melanie. So essentially... In response to this heartbreak, he buys a mansion. He starts spending all his money. He flew out 10 of his friends at one point to shop at Louis Vuitton in Atlanta. He was just throwing down his Amex. And within a few weeks, he went back to where she worked at the mall and picked her up and was like, leave this gap. (laughs) Be my wife.
0: And she was like, okay, I guess I'll go live in a mansion with you for a while.
1: It's such a short amount of time that one almost wonders, did he just have the flu? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. It's like that wasn't a psychosomatic reaction to sex That was a reaction to having the flu
1: Because he says that later that when you add up the time from the day he met Melanie Till now he's only been single for 15 days Truly <laughs> we're talking about Labor Day weekend He fucked so many girls Labor Day weekend Maybe he was just hung over I think he was just drunk
0: it was michael jordan's flu game but sex how many girls did he get sick thank god it wasn't during an omicron outbreak this could have been dangerous will smith's bedroom with (laughs) Santacon. obviously their relationship is never fully repaired he says i felt like my forgiveness had been such a gigantic gesture of love that she should have been grateful to even be here
1: the Marian Road Roadhouse was now party central at any given time there was 20 or more people in the house blasting music shooting pool and he starts hanging out with the JBM crew which is the Junior Black Mafia which are a bunch of like drug dealers he knows and he starts going out to LA and he is just partying his little butt off he gets studio time at Compass Point Studios which is like a really famous studio in the Bahamas and they insist on going there instead of back to London or even staying in Philly and they go and they blow through like $300,000 of studio time by just smoking weed and hanging out and partying and not recording a word of their next album he's also also going to L.A. all the time.
0: He meets this girl named Tanya. So in L.A., he meets a basketball player named Poo Richardson. And Poo Richardson is dating a girl named Tia, whose cousin is Tanya. So he starts hanging out with Poo, Tia, and Tanya. And he is obsessed with Poo and Tia's relationship. His one job was to play basketball well Tia did everything else. When I saw them together, I knew that I wanted that. They were partners in the Pooh Richardson going to the NBA business. He's going out with Charlie all the time, spending time with Tanya, and really admiring the way that their relationship is in service of him, which is really not a thing he reflects on at all, even though it's disgusting.
1: That is, to him, the perfect team. That there's one person that's the star, and everybody on the team supports that person, and that's the kind of relationship he wants. So he's with Melanie. Things are obviously horrible. They're not having sex anymore he's going to LA and he's like we didn't kiss for the first year I knew her because I don't think he ever cheats on Melanie with her but he does basically have like a second wife out in LA he stays with her she takes care of him she picks up for the airport she makes all the plans and then he also around this time has a
0: big falling out with Ready Rock he is feeling very forgotten essentially because on the next album Ready Rock really just doesn't have a place in it and he says In live performance, Ready Rock has a little part in the show that is usually the best part of the show. But on the album and in their actual career he's
1: falling to the wayside. Because don't forget, Reddy Rock was a beatboxer. And the idea of having a human being who sounds like technology is kind of lost when you're listening to a record. So this is
0: another person who just simply can't elevate with Team Will. What's really happening is Reddy Rock is seeing that there's no place for him in this setup. Plus, he's not even Will's best friend anymore. Charlie Mack, the bodyguard, has become Will's best friend.
1: And also, I know you already said it, but I want to reiterate, they had recorded all of these songs for this album that they tried to record out in the Bahamas called In This Corner. All of Ready Rock's songs got cut from the album. Right. And so Will just
0: can't believe that Ready Rock doesn't see the value in his being the literal smallest member of the team. And so Ready Rock just doesn't show up for a performance one night. They never bring him out on stage again. And Will is obsessed with the fact that this is Ready Rock's fault. He says he had a crew of friends who would die for him, yet there was some blind or broken part of him that for some reason
1: couldn't perceive the full scope
0: of the opportunity stretching out before him.
1: In my entire life, few things have been more painful than watching someone I love self-destruct.
0: It's so condescending. Throughout my career, I've seen this pattern over and over again. I've given hundreds of jobs to people, many of whom have ultimately cracked and crumbled under the pressure of the possibilities. Maybe Ready Rock just didn't want to be
1: your sidekick. And not even a sidekick. He was getting cut out. To say that Ready Rock self-destructed, that's literally not what happened. You cut him out of the entire performance. You cut him out of the album. You said yourself, the future of rap was moving away from what Ready Rock had to offer. You think he was an idiot for not being able to see the vision of the Will Smith show. One, to ask people to see that vision is a huge ask of people too. it's crazy to assume that everybody's dream in life is to support your dream
0: especially because at this point they're still like 20 years old and they're watching him achieve things so there's this feeling of possibility like we could all achieve things right now to say like no i'm actually the only one and if you don't hop on board with me you're nothing is such a weird and arrogant and also borderline psychotic point of view
1: The other thing is, it's not like he's this disciplined Will Smith who's out there just crushing it time after time. They had a year of success. They won the Grammy. They went on tour. Everything was good. And then they end up in the Bahamas where they did such a bad job in the Bahamas that JL flew Daddy O in to shut down the party and literally drag Will home. So that's where they were at maturity wise. So the man who had to have his literal father show up in the Bahamas and rip him out of a jive paid for studio because he was being so immature and unproductive. Is also like, why aren't you listening to me? Why don't you put your blind faith in me? So what if I cut you out of everything? You should still just fall in line. You're self-destructing. And I can't believe you wouldn't let me help you succeed. To be like, I've given hundreds of people jobs and they didn't do what I told them to. Why did they fuck themselves over like that? It's so weird to not have this idea that anybody else wants forged their own path. So
0: now things start to go bad. Their fame is slipping. One good album and Grammy cannot keep them afloat forever and in this corner is an absolute flop they just don't really have much going for them they are spending all of their money so fast and then it turns out that they do not have as much money as they thought they did in 1990 the taxes come knocking they say we're the taxes and you owe us yours and will smith is like i'm sorry what (laughs) it turns out will smith and dj jazzy jeff had not paid any taxes and jl is like what the fuck are you talking about He hires a tax lawyer, but they are so deep
1: in the hole on this. That he has to sell everything. He has to sell the house. He has to sell all of the motorcycles. He has to sell all of the cars. And he still owes millions of dollars. He owes them money up through the Fresh Prince. Then things with Melanie are going so badly.
0: Obviously, he never forgave her for cheating, He's with some friends. Melanie comes downstairs all dressed up and ready to go out. And he's like, where the hell are you going? She throws him some attitude and he can't believe he's been disrespected in front of his friends. I think it's a lot more about being disrespected in front of his friends than it is about anything else. He sends his friends home. And when she comes home that night, he has all of her belongings on the front yard and he lights them on fire. Yes, we were young. Yes, we hurt each other. But she did not deserve how I treated her. She did not deserve how it ended.
1: Yeah, you lit her shit on fire. I also wonder if that's all there is to it because he says to this day she won't answer any of his calls.
0: So then the final nail in this downward spiral coffin. One day they're on the radio in Philly. Dana Goodman shows up presumably to attack Will. They go out the back door. In protecting him, Charlie punches the guy in the face super hard Breaks his orbital bone. It turns out there's a law in Pennsylvania that because Charlie was acting in service to Will Smith, Will was the one who was liable for this broken bone. So he spends the night in
1: jail. When he gets out of jail, he goes to his mom's house and there's a cop that he knew who's like, listen, have you been hanging out with the JBM crew? And he's like, yeah, why? And he's like, well, the FBI has been watching them. There's about to be a major sting. You have to get out of here. You cannot be associated with them. You'll go down too." So
0: he goes to Bucky, his number one bestie in the JBM. And he's like, hey, they are about to get you. By the way, can I borrow some money? Because he is broke as a joke at this point.
1: He decides that he needs to start over, move to LA, where he's been kind of running and hiding with Tanya. But he literally cannot afford to get out there. Bucky gives him $10,000
0: cash. He walks away, flies straight to LA with his bag of cash. Bucky gets shot three days later and dies and will spends the next month in tanya's apartment in la just staring at the ceiling being like okay so i have no money my friend just got shot
1: i have no career i'm not super sure what to do next everything he's worked for he has now hit rock bottom and he's like below where he started i'll say we owe it all to tanya
0: tanya is his bedsheets she tells him you have to get it together you have to get up get your life moving again and do you know what you should do One of the last contacts you have in this business is Arsenio Hall. You can just go hang out at the Arsenio Hall show and see what happens next. And he's like, just hang out at the Arsenio Hall show. And she's like, yeah, go get out of my house and go hang out with Arsenio Hall.
1: If you're only going to have one contact left in the business, I feel like that's a really good one to have. And if you're going to hang out somewhere to network, I feel like that's a real top of the line networking opportunity. Hanging out with Charlie Mack
0: at the Arsenio Hall show, he meets... Benny Medina this is the most important contact he makes Benny Medina is an A&R exec at Warner Brothers and he didn't really think that that was anything that spectacular considering the other people he was meeting at the Arsenio Hall show were like Mariah Carey Miles Davis and Madonna but but Benny Medina was actually the idea behind the French Prince of Bel-Air the French Prince of <laughs> <Bel-Air>. <laughs> Bonjour <laughs> Because of this connect with Benny Medina, one day he gets a call from Benny being like, I'm going to Quincy Jones's birthday party tonight and you have to come too. Will was in Detroit at the time, gets on a plane, gets to LA, goes straight to Quincy Jones's house and Quincy Jones is so ecstatic to meet him. He's like, we have this idea for the show. You are going to be the star of it. You're going to audition for it literally right now in front of every single person at my birthday party. Will's like, okay, I've been saying I want to be an actor, but I don't actually know how to do acting. And Quincy's like, I literally don't care. You could do it right now or you can do it never.
1: Will is given 15 minutes to emotionally prepare.
0: Because the thing is, every decision maker in Hollywood was at this birthday party. So Quincy Jones is like, right now we have to do this because they'll never be all in the same room literally ever again.
1: So he makes him audition. Everybody's laughing. Quincy literally turns to the head of NBC and goes, what do you think? Do you like it? And NBC's like, yeah, I like it. He goes, no do you like it? And he's like, yeah, I like it. He goes, great, drop a memo, call your lawyer. He literally called the lawyer who was at Mount Cedar sinai watching the birth of his daughter and said, get over here as soon as possible and draft up a memo at a birthday party. And the guy kept being like, well, we can wait. He goes, no, we can't wait. He insists on the deal being made that night.
0: He keeps on screaming, no paralysis through analysis. Drop the deal memo right now.
1: Quincy's party had been on March 14th, 1990. The writing, auditions, final casting, and deal-making were completed by the end of April. Staffing, set design, wardrobe, etc. were completed. We shot the pilot mid-May. The show was edited and tested in late July. We promoted in August and it aired September 10th, 1990. There was no paralysis through analysis. It is so wild that he
0: started that year in enormous debt with no career to speak of and by the middle of the year was starring in one of the most successful sitcoms of all time.
1: I mean, I will say he acknowledges that. He goes, the universe had given me a second chance, and I swear to God that I would not need a third. I know he recognizes it and acknowledges it, but I need time to
0: process it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is insane that it's like, so he graduated high school in 86. He's already won a Grammy, been on tour, blown up a record deal badly, and now he's getting his second shot at being the star of a primetime TV show. He is 22.
0: Yeah, so he convinces some of the boys to come out to move to Los Angeles with him. Omar and Charlie Mack take him up right away. JL takes a little convincing, and DJ Jazzy Jeff, he has to... Bag. He talks to the producers of Fresh Prince, secures a six episode arc for DJ Jazzy Jeff. And Jeff is like, I'm not really feeling it. And he's like, Okay, come out for three episodes. We'll make music at the same time so it won't be like a wasted trip. And if you don't like it, you can go back. And then it turns out Jeff did have fun being on The Fresh Prince of Bel Air and people loved his character. So it all worked out. And Will's like, That's on me, baby. Jeff would have been living in his mom's basement if it wasn't for me. And it's like, You would have been living in your mom's basement if it wasn't for Jeff.
1: I don't know. I think Will was going to make it work no matter what. I don't think he's obsessed with being the best. I think he's obsessed with being the most successful. And that's a very different thing. But I'm just
0: saying the tables really turned on how he's like, all Jazzy Jeff's career is owed to me. (laughs) So Fresh Prince is taking off. Tanya is obviously the one who got him on his feet and got him settled in LA and helped him revive his career. But we have this little aside, not really about the end of his relationship with Tanya, but about his new relationship philosophy. Before his relationship philosophy had been, he wants one woman, one woman only, and all he cares about is serving one perfect woman. Now he's saying love and relationships are also subject to the universal law of impermanence. I vowed to never get caught without my eye on my next love. My heart had been crushed and I was certain that it would happen again. So he views himself like Tarzan catching the next vine as I let go of the old one. A vine is a woman.
1: While we're talking about Tanya, I want to talk about what appealed about her to him. He says, the second I would land, Tanya would be at the airport in a rental car, keys to the hotel, dinner reservations, whatever I needed. LA girls always seemed organized and business minded. They were always fly and always pursuing some kind of dream or opportunity. There was something about the culture of Los Angeles that brought an upwardly mobile mentality. Although he sees love and like the way he gives love as giving opportunities, supporting people financially, providing for a woman, he requires that the woman he's providing for also have ambition and want opportunities. But then we see he loves that she does her own thing, but then he ultimately breaks up with her because she's her own person. They break up because she smokes weed and he's like, listen, you can't smoke weed. You have to stop. You're addicted. And she goes, I'm not addicted to smoking weed. He goes, okay, you have to take 30 days off to prove to me that you're not addicted or it's over. And she just goes, fine, it's over. And they broke up. I find it very interesting that he both talks about how much he wants this like nurturing girlfriend and then he also wants a wife that has her own thing going on, but then he also wants you to be completely subordinate to him and his dream and his ambition. Even if you support his dream and his ambition 100%, you can't live your life differently than he would live his life. He doesn't want a human being. He wants an employee.
0: And he has employees, but everyone is his employee.
1: It's back to that original thing that his dad said is, if two people are in control, everybody dies. And it's like, okay, but when you're in a relationship, both people have to have control. He and Tanya break up. He's still making music. Things are going pretty well. He records Summertime on the next album that comes out called Home Base. That ends up winning a Grammy as well. He is in his prime and he's crushing it. And JL
0: sits him down and says, What is the goal? What are we trying to do here overall? And that's when he comes to the realization that his goal is to be the biggest movie star in the world. And JL's like, Yeah, we're going to do that. Perfect.
1: I will say one of the things is I don't want to say it's luck because we have seen the way that if you don't have Will's ambition, he drops you. But JL matches Will and his ambition and he got an incredible manager out of JL. JL becomes obsessed with figuring out what to do. He goes, when JL has a goal, his ability to educate and transform his mind is beyond that of anyone I've ever met. He spent the next few months reading every screenplay in Hollywood. Old ones, new ones, bad ones, good ones, successful movies that had already come out, failed movies that were never released, hits and flops and everything in between. He probably read 100 screenplays and he would discuss the pros and cons of each. And then they would meet up and decide what makes a movie star. And they like came up with this list of the qualities that a movie star has and the type of movie that a movie star does. And they started seeking that out. You had to fight, you had to be funny, and you had to be good at sex. (sighs) Which he calls the three Fs. And it's just like, oh my God, Will. Say the words you want to say in this book. Clearly, be good at sex. There's no F in those statements.
0: (laughs) I just realized that.
1: At this time that he's at his height, he's hanging out by the audition room. He said him and Alfonso, who played Carlton, would hang out by the audition room because every beautiful woman in LA at that time was auditioning to be on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And one day, a a hot young thing walks out. He tries to hit on her. She rejects him and just keeps going. That woman? Jada Pinkett. Is that how you're going to say
0: it? Uh Uh-huh. He sees Jada and he's like, holy shit, she is so pretty. Obviously, she won't talk to him then. He creates a plan to meet her on her show. He's like, she is on a sitcom. I'm going to show up in the audience of the sitcom. People are going to lose their fucking minds and she'll have no choice but to talk to me. So his plan to woo her is to get attention for himself, obviously. In the process, he does not meet Jada, but he does meet another woman in the audience named Cherie.
1: And so he marries her in three months and gets her pregnant. On November 11th, 1992, Willard Carroll Smith III, Trey, is born. He's freaking out. He's a first-time father. He's 24 years old. It's 3 a.m. I'm on my knees. I'm just a little boy. I never wanted my daddy so bad. And then something clicked deep in a place where nothing had ever clicked before. A decision. An ironclad conviction. There were only two possibilities. I was going to be the best father this planet had ever seen. Or I was going to be dead. So again... We find him at this dichotomy that literally doesn't exist. It's just not true. You're not going to be dead if you're a medium father. You're also never going to be the best father. There's no
0: such thing as the best father. Well, yeah, there is. They wouldn't make those mugs if there weren't. (laughs) (laughs) So he speaks very highly of Cherie here. He says she was the perfect hostess, bringing life to the wife I had seen in my head, like Tia and Pooh Richardson. Cherie and I were a team in the 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 will-becoming-the-biggest-movie-star-in-the-world business. So this is exactly what he's always wanted, a wife who lives for him. Also, she has this ambition. She had gone to the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. She could make her own clothes. She could paint. It was the first time I'd ever seen someone hang their own art in their home. I thought that was hot. He really likes that she has these other things, but clearly not the drive to push them over his own agenda.
1: Cherie's vision of a happy life was joyful, harmonious, nurturing, taking care of people, homemaking. She was happy to live a simple life as a mom and a wife. I wanted to conquer. My definition of love was protection and provision, securing the family's physical and financial future. My belief was a meal is a lot less enjoyable if you have to eat it in a tent underneath an overpass. Okay. I just am so confused by this statement because one... Why is he saying that they had two different visions? She wanted to be a mom and a wife and make a beautiful home. And he wanted to provide protection and provision. Why was that incongruous? My belief was a meal is a lot less enjoyable if you have to eat it in a tent underneath an overpass. When did Cherie say, I'm making this meal, but we're taking it outside. We're eating it on the road. (laughs) I want to ask him in this line, where do you see the two different things? Where's the clash? Hmm. Where's the conflict? So around this
0: time, JL has gotten... A call. He gets an offer, his first giant movie offer. He's offered $10 million to star in some awful action movie. And JL is like, I have to tell you about this offer because it's $10 million, but I really don't think you should take it. He later gets offered a very serious role in a movie called Six Degrees of Separation for $300,000. And they agree that if he wants to prove himself as a real actor, he should take the Six Degrees of Separation offer. So he takes the $300,000 movie over the $10 million movie and he dabbles in method acting. He has this really intensive experience where he like falls in love on set. He really loses himself in this movie, but he's obsessed with how successful it was and how it proves him to be a great actor.
1: It was fun at first, but then slowly and imperceptibly, I lost touch with my own likes and dislikes. I lost access to the intonation and rhythm of my own speech. I lost touch with Will Smith. He so much became the Paul character he was playing that he forgot who he was, and we went back to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He couldn't even remember how to talk like he used to talk. I fell in love with Stalker Channing, not as Will, but as Paul, and I couldn't turn it off. This was right at the beginning of when he and Cherie were married. You know, they got married after three months of knowing each other. Trey was born almost immediately in 1992 Six Degrees of Separation came out at the end of 93 when he was filming it Trey was like a newborn and when he came back from the film he's like our marriage was not doing well part of it was that I had become another person I didn't know who I was the guy she had married was gone and the guy I had become was in love with somebody else and then he goes I am not trying to relinquish any of my responsibility for the deterioration of our marriage but I believe firmly that the early months of our union being marred by my disappearance into the character of Paul created a disconnect between Sheree and me from which we could never recover. And so I have a lot of questions about his use of the word, but. But suggests that the disappearance into his character created a disconnect and that somehow that fact is different than him taking responsibility. And so I guess my question to Will is why don't you see that as a legitimate problem that you created? He's saying, listen, I'm not saying it wasn't my fault, but I do think that this time... It was Paul's fault. So he thinks it's Cherie's fault for being mad that he became a different person at the beginning of their marriage?
0: No, he thinks it's Paul's fault for coming back and being an asshole to Cherie and then she couldn't forgive Will because Will looked the same as Paul.
1: Don't you think that's weird that he's... I think it's insane. listen, I did something wrong in our marriage. But at the end of the day, the thing that broke us up is that I became a different person. But that's somehow not my fault. No,
0: at the end of the day, what broke us up is that Cherie couldn't forgive and forget. So it's her fault that he goes through these erratic spells where like one day he's one person, then he leaves his new wife and his newborn for months to make this movie, comes back a different person. She has issues with it. And then she couldn't get over it.
1: I would say his deep narcissism that we really start to see here is that His pursuit of greatness, he keeps claiming is for everybody around him. And anytime you can't get on board with his pursuit of greatness, you are the problem and you just like don't accept love good. He's like, every time I do something to be great, I'm making the sacrifice. He doesn't see that Sharif made a sacrifice. It's like she couldn't handle how amazing he is. The next paragraph, he says,
0: JL was right. My name started to be discussed in Hollywood as a serious actor. So this is a victory overall. It cost him his family, but it's a victory because now he's a serious actor.
1: It didn't cost him his family. Cherie's inability to get with the program and recognize his greatness cost him his family. She broke them up by being a dumb bitch. She wanted the man she married to come home.
0: (laughs) Also, this whole thing of him being a serious actor and trying to be taken seriously as an actor, he was unable to act in The Fresh Prince for a full half a season afterwards. He lost his comedic timing. In trying to pursue serious acting, he becomes so bad at acting, he can't even be a sitcom star anymore. So she's pissed off. She does the classic. I'm going to go back to my mom's house for a couple weeks. She takes the kid in his time alone. He gets a call from a friend being like, hey, we're at a bar called the Baked Potato, which is right by my old apartment in Studio City. So he goes to this lounge. Guess who was there? But Jada, they spend all night talking. He is obsessed with her. He says, we talked about everything. She can meet me, ascend and elaborate on all topics and subjects from Tupac to apartheid from college basketball to Ganesh and Eastern mysticism. I cannot think of a conversation that I've ever heard of that sounds more insufferable than this one. He also later reveals that Jada grew up with Tupac and they were close personal friends. So it's like weird that he's like, you are not going to believe it, but she could really hold a conversation about Tupac. And it's like, were you guys having the same conversation? (laughs) Anyway, I do think that the more important part here is that she could meet me, ascend, and elaborate. Wow, she was so good at conversations that she could converse with me, the greatest man alive.
1: Will Smith, perfect husband, had gone on this date with the woman of his dreams while his wife was with her parents. She comes home. He's committed to making it work. They go out to dinner, and he says, while they're at dinner, a surging wave of dizziness, a shortness of breath, beads of sweat jumping up on my forehead. He has a literal panic attack he thinks he's about to pass out he has to go to the bathroom he goes I charged into the bathroom and locked myself into one of the stalls I suddenly burst into tears for the next 20 minutes I purged toggling back and forth between sobbing and laughing hysterically
0: and slowly my emotional truth came into vivid three-dimensional clarity I knew with absolute certainty that Jada Pinkett was the woman of my dreams but I had committed my life before God to Cherie and there was no version of me ever going back on my word
1: Soon the hysteria subsided. I wiped my tears and I exited the bathroom, fully prepared to spend the rest of my life with Cherie Smith. Of course, the next page is about his divorce. You never imagined it was that bad. The narcissism you have to have to sit here and write a chapter about how even though you're in the bathroom on a date with your wife hysterically crying about loving another woman more and being like, but she was the failure for giving up on our marriage. He goes, we got divorced too soon. She gave up. I made a vow. I made a vow to myself. He goes, you don't make a vow to your partner. You make a vow to yourself. So the worst parts of yourself that you're going to stick it out no matter what or you die. Doesn't your partner deserve to be with somebody who loves them? It is so insane for you to sit there and be like, I hate my wife, but I'm the hero. The things
0: that she says on the next page are very intuitive. Cherie sounds like a real winner that got fucking mopped up by the Will Smith machine. Cherie said that I wasn't in love with her. I was in love with the idea of her. She used to call herself my placeholder wife, the woman who was supposed to check the box of wife in Will Smith's perfect life. That's exactly what she fucking was. And he doesn't reflect on it at all. He just calls Quincy Jones and is like, I'm getting divorced. What do I do? And Quincy gives the best divorce advice I've literally ever heard in my life. He says, give that woman half. Tell her you'll see her on Christmas Eve and move on with your life. You're going to make all that money back next year anyway. Just write the damn check and move on. (laughs) You don't need to be married to be a family. He's basically saying, keep it amicable. Do your best. And you can still be in your son's life. You can live down the street. You can still have a good relationship. You don't have to be in a miserable marriage.
1: I guess I just can't get over the line the vow is not to your partner. The vow is to the weakest part of yourself. How would you not quit if that's one of the options? I've never been married, so I, I'm not one to talk on it, but I guess like, I do have a dream that one day when I do get married, that I will be somewhat important in my husband's vows. I'm sorry. I'm not an Man triathlon. I am not a conquering of your will. I'm not a 20-minute plank. I'm not something that you have to suffer through because if you were given the option to leave, you would leave in a second. What
0: he's saying is literally incorrect. You're not a vow to yourself. You're making a vow to the other person. Getting married isn't getting married to the idea of marriage to yourself. <laughs> like <laughs> I personally married the idea of marriage, but some other person happened to be in that contract. And I guess they're also married to the idea of marriage. And our ideas of marriage are married to each other.
1: <laughs> marriage isn't about your partner. It's about seeing how miserable you can be for how long until you meet God and one day get to just lay down your burden. And your burden, of course, is your wife. <laughs>
0: So he on February 14th is served divorce papers. He spends five days toiling over this failure. And on February 19th, he calls Jada and is like, I'm single. (laughs) Jada had
1: moved home. She had given up on acting. She hated it in LA. And so she found like a beautiful farmhouse in Baltimore and was prepared to move in there. And instead she got on the plane and flew out and they just were like boyfriend girlfriend. She's just like, okay. She just moved in with him. They were together. And then when they were about to sign
0: their divorce papers, Cherie was like, should we give it another chance? And he called Jada and was like, I'm getting back together with Cherie. And then Jada was like, yeah, that makes sense. And then he was like, oh, okay, never mind. You're actually really smart. So I'm going (laughs) to divorce Cherie and you're still in, bitch.
1: (laughs) Imagine your boyfriend calls you up and he goes, hey, I think we should break up because it'd be better for my son. And you go, okay. And he goes, I was kidding. I wasn't thinking about my son at all. It was a trick. It was a trap. You passed
0: okay can we talk about a trap that she didn't pass
1: oh my god i cannot wait to see we're gonna put a poll on instagram because i need to know people's opinion
0: okay so he and jada's relationship was a secret for months because he was still technically married the divorce papers had not been signed so Gigi calls up and is like ellen your sister tells me that you have a new girlfriend i have to meet her and will's like oh yeah that makes sense hop on a plane come meet my gal jada's at work that day and is like okay Jada's at work. She's going to come home. I'm going to be here with my grandma. They're going to have dinner. It'll be beautiful. Will decides to do an elaborate prank he thinks that this is the funniest thing he has ever heard he writes to us this next story has been a bone of contention between jada and me for more than two decades it's been so contentious that i considered leaving it out of the book altogether but i decided to let you dear readers settle our dispute once and for all so please clear your minds you have been chosen as the supreme court of this story the question to you learned justices is a simple one is this prank funny or not funny so jada had been in a movie that had a raucous sex scene It's called Jason's lyric at 63 minutes in Jada is all nuded up boinking he decides to watch this movie with his grandma timed so that when jada walks into the house to meet his grandma she will be nude on screen he says the comedic scene has been set and boy did the comedy gods come through in the moment of unbelievable comedic synchronicity jada walked into my family room exactly 63 and a half minutes later to find Gigi summoning all the jesus she could muster as lyric and jason roll around butt naked on screen not even socks on outside on the grass. Jada freezes. She looks at Gigi, then to the screen, back to Gigi, horrified, then to me, back to the screen, to Gigi, to me. This is so mean. This is cruel. I get that she consensually was on screen naked, but I think to put her in this situation, confronted by her naked body and a grandma... Is so fucked up.
1: I don't think it's funny. And Jada still doesn't think it's funny. Do you know what it is?
0: I think it's almost slut shaming. I think he's using her hot sex scene against her.
1: He's trying to shame her. He's trying to humiliate her sexually by using her naked body to humiliate. Like, that's really fucking mean. He didn't put a fart under her or anything. He didn't tell her, oh, everybody calls my GG Gam Gam or something real kooky like that. It's so rude. And then he goes on to be like, they're great friends now. They get along. And he goes, and it is my ardent belief that my orchestration of that initial meeting laid the foundation for their profound connection. It did not. It did not. They would have been friends anyway. Who got anything out of that situation? It's
0: just not something you do to somebody you respect. You really did use her own choices about like what to do with her body against her.
1: Maybe he thought Jada would get off on it. Like, he loves humiliation. He loves sexual yeah. humiliation. And he just, like, mistakenly thought that Jada would like that, too.
0: Right. Because what Will likes, everyone likes. So he's like, yeah, having my grandma see you naked will get you horned to hell.
1: <laughs> All I ever wanted from a woman sexually was for her to look at me like my grandma looks at me. So don't you want my grandma to look at you sexually, too? <laughs> Ugh,
0: God. Things are uh, always fine for old Will, so... Martin Lawrence calls on the phone and is like, "I have this idea for a movie. The script is absolute trash, but I feel like the movie could be good." That movie is Bad Boys, and it made him a movie star.
1: The next ten years of my professional life were an absolute, unadulterated, unblemished route of the entertainment industry. Bad Boys, Independence Day, Men in Black, Enemy of the State, Wild Wild West, Ali, Men in Black Two, Bad Boys Two, I Robot, Shark Tale. Pitch, The Pursuit of Happiness, I Am Legend, in Hancock.
0: When Bad Boys comes out and he realizes at this point that he's a movie star, he says a line that I find to be one of the most egregious in this book. There's a scene in Bad Boys that he was really unsure about where he's running on a bridge with an explosion behind him and his shirt is unbuttoned, and I guess it's sexy. And he says, It was the first time I had ever experienced a woman having a sexual reaction to my manness." Does that not make you want to kill yourself?
1: So Bad Boys came out in 1995. It didn't like break records, but it was a solid hit and it did catapult him into being a movie star. In 1996, he ends The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air after agreeing to do Independence Day. He says he ended it so that they didn't have to jump the shark, so to speak. He said it was really important that no
0: one had to deal with the loss of dignity that comes with being canceled mid-season. So he ended the show so that they could walk away with their head held high, unemployed.
1: Yeah, well, he walked on to be a huge success. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air ended May 20th, 1996. And I would like to walk you through his 1997. Independence Day was July 1996. The Men in Black song was mid-June 1997. The movie was two weeks later. Big Willie Style was November 1997. And right after that, I started filming Enemy of the State. I married Jada December 31st, 1997. Getting Jiggy With It came out 1998 in January and became his first number one hit in March. So he had an insane two or three year run there. And then Jaden was born July of 1998. So that maps out the next couple of years so that you guys have an idea of his success. Independence Day had a $75 million budget and ended up being the second highest grossing movie of all time.
0: So we know his goal is to become the biggest movie star in the world. And he does not take this as a light goal, like a conceptual like, oh yeah, being the biggest movie star in the world would be cool. He literally walks up to... Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, and Bruce Willis at one point asks them flat out, how do I be the biggest movie star in the world? Arnold said, You're not a movie star if your movies are only successful in America. You're not a movie star until every single person in every country on earth knows who you are. You have to travel the globe, shake every hand, kiss every baby. Think of yourself as a politician running for biggest movie star in the world. And he sets his sights on Tom Cruise as the one to beat.
1: He goes, What is Tom Cruise doing that's making him so successful? And he was told he does promo. in every single country and he signs every single autograph of everybody who asks. during the last season of the Fresh Prince every weekend he would fly to Europe and do a different premiere and sign every autograph and he was like how do I beat Tom Cruise at this game in a stroke of genius comes up with the idea that he's going to use his music and he's like by coming up with songs that came out in tandem with the films not only was he able to get free radio play promo the songs drove movie sales the movie sales drove albums. And then the music video was able to be like a trailer for the film. It all worked perfectly. It was very well synchronized. He started using the music to help do fan outreach when he went on these press tours. For the people who didn't get into the premiere, I would do a free concert outside that would shut down like an entire city block. And that's how he beat Tom Cruise at his own goddamn game.
0: And I think this is a really interesting outlook the movie companies are putting up north of $150 million to plaster movie posters in every country in the world. I would get to piggyback on their massive financial investment. In my mind, I was never promoting a movie. I was using their $150 million to promote me. So he was going to all these press events for himself.
1: So he's crushing it every which way. Willow Camille Rain Smith was born Halloween 2000. Something strange happened in our family dynamic after Willow was born. Up until then, we had maintained a fragile equilibrium. Sheree and I had one child and Jaden and I had one child. We'd worked very hard to cultivate a sense of a singular family. It was rough in the beginning, but Jaden and Sheree agreed that Jaden and Trey must think of themselves as full brothers. Jada even refused to use the term stepmom. To this day, Trey prefers to see her as his bonus mom. What do they call Cherie? The mistake wife, I guess. (laughs) First draft. I
0: actually really quickly want to back up to Jada and Will's wedding. I think this is really important. Jada had no intention of ever getting married. He tells the story of Jaden being conceived in a detail we did not need. He literally talks about them coming.
1: Jada goes, I'm crescendoing, and Will goes, I'm crescendoing,
0: and they crescendoed together. This is part of his cuck thing. And that's why I felt like it was important to include it because I know Will's listening to this right now and he's about to crescendo. She's pregnant, the whole family wants them to get married. Her grandma is very traditional. His family is pretty traditional. And Jada is so opposed to the idea of a traditional husband-wife relationship. A real wedding ceremony should be a marathon. We should have to run an actual marathon together. And if we're both still there at the finish line, then we've earned the right to get married. You got to know that that person is a survivor. He basically says that they got married because in her second trimester, she was so tired and sick of arguing that she just agreed to be married. He literally had to like pregnancy her into submission. Well,
1: I think it was more from like the family. I don't care.
0: I think he did it too. He wanted a wife to tote around and be like,
1: this is my wife. My wife. (laughs) What I find interesting about our singular family unit is that, He's still the only man. He's still like the alpha of the situation. The symmetry reflects around him being the center. But he says, Willow's birth had tipped the scales of a precariously balanced, blended family. And suddenly for the first time from within and from without, there was a sense of my new family and of my old family. In the press, when people would refer to Will Smith's family, they would oftentimes use pictures of only myself, Jada, Jaden, and Willow, leaving out Cherie and Trey. The media preferred the symmetry and conventionality of the nuclear grouping.
0: Yeah, you also named your kids for symmetry of a nuclear grouping it's willow's fault for throwing off the symmetry and the press's fault for highlighting that nuclear family unit it's not will's fault for not giving enough attention to sheree and trey finally Uh
1: it's sheree's fault right she because you know how women suck Uh, yes i do know that sheree and trey started to retreat from the spotlight but the spotlight was where i lived i took their withdrawal personally What do you mean you don't want to be at the premiere of my movie? My family has to walk the red carpet with me. That's how we eat.
0: That's how we eat. His obsession with like, there will be food on the table or there won't be. After six seasons of The Fresh Prince, you could have just been a TV star and your family
1: would have ate. Does he think Carlton's family is starving to death? Yes. So Cherie said, I want our son to have a normal life. I want him to go to school. I want him to go to church. I want him to have friends. That's not his life, I said. That's not your life, Will. It can absolutely be Trey's life. That's why he has a mother and a father. I don't want him bouncing around from city to city, set to set with no stability. My son has to be with me. I said, I'm the man you had a baby with. So I'm the father that your son has. In order for me to parent, he has to have the freedom when I move. She goes, what about school? Will says he could get a tutor. Will, I've seen you on set, Sheree said. You're not even going to be paying attention to him. He's going to be left with whatever tutor or nanny you hire. Some people do make movies in LA, you know. Did you ever think about maybe staying in LA and raising your son?
0: He does give us the rest of the conversation, but he gives it to us with reflection. He says... The emotional wall I keep crashing into while writing this book is that today I know the right answers to many of these questions, but in the confusion of yesterday, I created so many unnecessary messes. Here's what I should have said. First of all, I love you. I realize this is not the life either of us envisioned, but this is where we are. I know it's scary, but I'm devoted to you and Trey with all of my being for the rest of my life. Now, in order to secure resources for our family, I have to be mobile and I have to be global, but I hear you and I understand your concerns. It's scary to go up against prevailing wisdom, blah, blah, blah essentially this is like a kind way of saying no we have to be on the move what he actually said is sure then we'll just sell everything and live on whatever you can earn that is fucked this harkens back to what we didn't mention before the main argument that broke up him and sheree they're having an argument about her paying for a haircut that he had ordered and basically she didn't pay the guy, the correct amount of money. He's really upset. She's like, I'm not your errand girl. And he said, maybe one day you'll be worth something. That is a psychotic thing to say in a fit of anger to your wife and mother of your child.
1: I also feel like this, the emotional wall I keep crashing into is that now I can say things correctly. I'm doing a joke right now that I just started doing on stage about how we need to stop letting men go to therapy because it's not making them better. It's making them stronger. And this (laughs) is the perfect example of why they can't go to therapy because they don't go to therapy and learn how to understand someone else's perspective or question their own vision of the world. He doesn't look back and go, I see now that she had a valid point. Maybe Trey should have had a normal upbringing. Maybe it's not good for a young boy to be hopping around the globe on set with a father who doesn't have time for him. Maybe a kid should get to have friends and go to school and have a normal upbringing. Instead, he's like, I have the exact same perspective I do as I did then, only now I have therapy language to like gaslight you into thinking I'm being reasonable and respectful, when in reality, I'm just battering you harder. He writes, I will die before I allow our family to not flourish. And it's like,
0: what do you think flourishing is? Flourishing to him is his career on the rise. It is not his family emotionally flourishing.
1: In order to secure resources for our family, I have to be mobile. I have to be global. There are a lot of parents who are not global that somehow manage to get their kids fed into school and clean clothes. Does he think only Tom Cruise's kids eat right now? Does he not think Tom Cruise, who famously doesn't know his daughter, (laughs) is the end-all be-all? If he had grown up, like, without a home, starving to death, at least I would have been like, listen, that does shit to your psychology that is hard to undo. But he grew up middle class. He went to Catholic school. His dad owned a business that employed, like, dozens of people. Yeah. So his next move, he decides to buy an
0: estate, an enormous compound Jada is not interested in it. The compound is called Her Lake. She does not like the idea that this house is going to require significant upkeep. It's going to be an entire job to keep this home running. He is like, no, it's a good idea to have an artist's compound that we own. So he buys it. She specifically asks him not to. And he goes, no, it's for you. You don't understand. (laughs) Then he mentions that him and Jada are in therapy. And one of the greatest arguments they've ever had, they were asked to write their top priorities. And Jada wrote, number one, the children, two, Will, three, myself, four, extended family and friends. Will writes, number one, me, number two, Jada, number three, the children, number four, my career. Jada flips the fuck out, rightfully so. Being like, I cannot believe the children are not first. And he's like, no, but you know how like on an airplane, you have to put on your own mask before you can put on someone else's mask. You have to make sure yourself is good before you can help anyone else. And she's like, absolutely kill yourself. (laughs) She does not say that. Well, the thing is she's not mad. She's, She's horrified. I think realizing that that's the partner that you've chosen is so heartbreaking. It's not even a fight. It's just tragic.
1: He goes, Jada, all I'm saying is that if you don't go to the gym, if you don't eat right, and if you don't take your mental health and emotional condition as primary, you're not going to be a good mother.
0: So he continues to thrive as the biggest movie star in the world. He has one of the greatest
1: box office streaks of all time. So he talks about how he's met other artists as important as him. And they all come to the same conclusion that when you're such a serious, important person, everything comes second to the dream. And that's just how you become successful. And he goes, the attainment of my dream became an act of survival. In my darkest nights, my dream saved my life. I saw my hopes as the ticket to a better life, to joy, fulfillment, security, and safety. But here's the dichotomy. My wife was my vision. My family was my vision. My picture encompassed joy, fulfillment, and prosperity for all of us. It's my vision and it's not selfish because I'm doing it for everyone around me. In what way? I want to talk about my little like Amal Clooney theory about how these days it's not enough to have a trophy wife who's just like some hot bimbo. Now you have to have a trophy wife who's like a hot accomplished person. I feel like men like Will Smith think that their ambitions are obviously number one, but then everything around them has to reflect perfection and success. And he does not want to be successful so that he can allow his wife and children to thrive and be successful in their own right. He wants them to be successful in their own right so that they can reflect back upon him, his success. Yes. He says, I want to help
0: the people I love build extraordinary lives for themselves. And it's like, no, you want to help the people you love build extraordinary lives for you. That's all he cares about.
1: Yes, because he's so obsessed with the vision of himself. And I, to this day, don't think he truly gets that. He is obsessed with saying, I love the people in my life, and this is how I show love. I show love by giving them opportunities to be great. He wants people to be visibly great because then when people go, wow, not only is Will Smith perfect, but his whole family is perfect too.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's get into some of this stuff as his children become teenagers because I think that it becomes so deeply apparent and also so sad.
1: As they get older, him and Sheree start fighting more and more about custody between him and Trey. I begin to see Sheree as an impediment to my forging of Trey as a young warrior. My father raised me on the ice truck, mixing concrete at the shop, and he wants his son to go with him wherever he goes. And the fights they're getting into with is Sheree's like, he's nine years old, he needs to have a bedtime. And Willow's like, no, let him stay up as long as he wants. Let him learn the hard way that sleep is important. Or she's like, he can't play PlayStation all day. He goes, well, what if he's a PlayStation genius and he ends up inventing the most important video game? I want to allow his passion to align synergetically. But the irony is he keeps calling back to how he was forged in fire at his, di- at his ice shop. He was not allowed to rap all day. He had to come home at night. He had to go to school. He was not raised without a single obstacle allowing him to pursue his passion. If you're truly passionate, you're going to find a way to do it. It's also the fact that he's, like, in order to create the perfect son, I
0: have to rip him away from his mother.
1: What was these obstacles that Sheree wanted for his children? What, a routine, friends, school, a normal life? Yeah. And Cherie was
0: so right that, like, even if Trey went with Will wherever he goes, Will's making a movie. He's not hanging out with him, forging him into a warrior. So, you know, Will's the biggest movie star of all time. He meets this guy, Daryl, who's going to help him train to be Muhammad Ali.
1: He goes into, like, deep descriptions of who Muhammad Ali is. One of the funny things about this book is he writes it as if it might be the only book you have and will ever read in your life.
0: I think that he thinks this book is like the only source of information anyone will ever get. Sometimes he does these references to like older works of writing and he'll just like explain Icarus. He
1: tells you who Nelson Mandela is. I kind of think that people know. Yeah, so he does a whole chapter giving like the backstory on Muhammad Ali. So he starts making this movie, Ali, and they take it so seriously. He does a full year of boxing training with this new guy named Daryl, who he meets. Through Daryl, he is able to give word and like structure to how he's always felt, which is this idea that I'm the leader. Everything in this group is to serve me. And therefore, everybody should do things the way I do it. And they develop what he calls the fight camp mentality. This fight camp support the champ mentality became the new law of our group. Everybody had to run five at five. Everybody had to work out in the gym. Everybody had to eat right. Everybody had to read and study and offer new ideas. Everybody had to live a disciplined life to reach for the best versions of themselves. Otherwise, they had to go the fuck home. Everybody embraced that philosophy. And he's talking about like his manager, his assistant, his brother-in-law. If you want to be part of the Will Smith business, I guess you have to wake up at 5am and run five miles. That sucks. I am a dreamer and a builder. I picture grand visions and then I build the systems to make them real in the world. That is my love language. I want to help the people I love build extraordinary lives for themselves. But it demands that they will be willing to grind and sacrifice. And most importantly, they have to trust me. And if they don't, it registers as a complete rejection of my love. Psycho. That's a psycho.
0: I want to read these parts because I feel like they fit in so perfectly. He says, I was on a tear. The biggest winning streak in Hollywood history. I was working 70 to 80 hours a week. Holidays, weekends, even vacations became time to advance. I noticed that most people came back from Christmas vacation heavier and out of shape. So the holidays for me became an opportunity to extend my lead. I was killing it. I was winning at everything and winning to me meant everything else in my life should be perfect and everyone around me should be happy. But it wasn't, and they weren't. I could tell something was shifting. Jada was having almost daily crying spells. Now, in our mornings, she would wake up sobbing. During one stretch, she cried for 45 days straight. So his definition of success is elevating the people around him. His success is for other people's happiness. Jada is on a
1: 45-day crying streak. Well, I just think it's so insane that he's like, I love you. And that's why I'm going to tell you exactly how you're allowed to live your life. And if you don't live your life the exact way I tell you and have a different idea of success than mine and have a different idea of how you should live your life than mine, then you hate me and you're not allowed to be around me. Can I ask you as someone who is partnered? Yeah.
0: If you were with someone and one of you guys had... Oh my God.
1: When you said partnered, I thought you meant to you. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, fuck, this is actually gonna look bad because I do think you should live your life the way I tell you to. But like, I don't kick you out over it. I just bitch. (laughs) Okay, you meant I have a boyfriend, sure. (laughs) I forgot about him. I was gonna
0: ask, like, what do you think you would do if one of you guys woke up even four days in a row sobbing? I just can't believe he's like, we have our routine. And now a part of the routine is that she wakes up weeping it's just like what is the actual prize for being best do you know what I mean because yeah he has like the most money and the most box office success but his family fucking hates him
1: So he says that the one thing that's important to Jada is Christmas time. He jokes that like two weeks a year she turns into a middle-aged white lady and gets obsessed with having this picture-perfect Christmas. So what does he do in response to this since this is the one thing she asks of him like give us the week before and after Christmas? He starts doing this new thing where he will rent out an entire resort and invite all of his colleagues and their entire families under the premise of you get this family time on Will Smith's dime. But really what he does is he uses it so that they can all meet up every day and continue to have meetings throughout the holidays.
0: Because he's paying for their vacations, he has like the undivided attention of the industry.
1: I got to have my whole team at a remote location, a captive audience for daily strategy meetings that helped me get a jump on the year and on my competition. I would work out and sometimes even abstain from Christmas dinner as an act of personal discipline. What is the point of all of it? Congrats, you grossed $8 billion at the box office and you can't even have Christmas with your family. I'd rather be poor and have the joy of the warmth of the candle. As the purest Christmas girl in the
0: world, I don't even have Christmas and all I want is for everyone else to have a happy Christmas. He doesn't want anyone to have a happy Christmas.
1: Can I just point out the distinct irony of him being like, I have to be the number one movie star in the world so that my children can eat. And then on Christmas Day, he does not even eat because he's too busy pursuing being the number one movie star in the world. Extreme irony. Extreme irony that I don't even know if he's aware of. I don't think he is.
0: One Christmas, him and his family are playing Monopoly And he has, in fact, trained to be the best Monopoly player in the world. He says that Monopoly is not a game to him. It's like math.
1: He says, I have worked with professional instructors. I fully intended to play in international Monopoly tournaments. Sir, it's Monopoly! Also, Monopoly is the game version of capitalism, and you already won. You already are playing the international game of Monopoly. That's called life, bubby. So then he bankrupts Jada out of Monopoly, and he's
0: cheering and celebrating, and she just quietly retreats to her room, so upset that it's Christmas Eve, and now she's kicked out of the game. And he says, it took me years to realize that Jada wasn't actually playing Monopoly. She was bonding and connecting and enjoying family time. Apparently, I was the only person who was actually playing Monopoly. And then here's his little joke. I've since upgraded my software and developed a new axiom. Never get caught playing Monopoly.
1: (gasps) I'm so stupid, Ashley. I am such a dumb bitch with so much love in my heart and so truly ungreedy in my soul that the first time I read that, I thought he like got Monopoly for his computer. No, no.
0: He wasn't secretly playing Monopoly. He was like, okay, I'm still going to play Monopoly with the family and I'm still going to beat those dumb whores into the ground, but I'm not going to show them that I'm counting.
1: Oh my God. I can't believe I am so pure of heart that (laughs) my updated software couldn't even compute how truly sick in the head Will Smith is. I was like, oh, he's playing like Solitaire. And then listening to you read that quote right now, I was like, why would you need to update your software to play Monopoly? I feel like that's just like a free game. Like you should probably be able to run that on any computer. And then I was like, no, he's the
0: robot, he's a robot with no feelings, except for those violent outbursts that are unrelated to any feelings. And he had to update his software
1: on the flip side. The very next section that he talks about is he recalls playing chess as a little boy with his dad and how his dad never went easy on him. He didn't believe in going easy on kids. So for the first the years of his life, he lost. And he talks about the first time he ever beat his dad. It was like the greatest day of his life. He was so excited. His dad shook his hand. And we never played chess again. For years, I thought it was because he was a sore loser. But as I got to understand him better, I saw that he wanted my final memory of playing chess with my father to be perfect. He wanted my mind to be programmed to winning and to savor victory. His training of me on the chessboard was complete. It was a mythological rite of passage and he didn't want to tarnish it. What are you talking about? First of all, that's a lot of credit to give your father. I have a feeling he was a sore loser. Second of all, sports are more fun when you don't know who will win. It's not fun to play a child because they're stupid. Why couldn't they play into their old age? I don't understand. Every memory
0: is twisted. This whole book is a pile of nonsense, which is especially fascinating. Considering this line in chapter two, I'm a crowd pleaser. That's my actual job. The truth is whatever I decide to make you believe and I will make you believe it. That's what I do. No,
1: you don't, bitch. I see right through your stupid ass. I'm also thinking about at the beginning when he's like, I was so in tune with everybody's emotions that I could make anybody happy. What happened to that version of Will? I miss that Will. Me too.
0: He realizes that Jada is not happy because she
1: says it. She says, nothing in our world is mine. I don't want to live like this. I wanted a small farm and a quiet life.
0: He says, I get that, but we're here. So how do we fix it? You can do anything, babe. So what do you want to do? And so she decides to become a heavy metal singer.
1: And it goes great. She ends up doing Ozfest, and she crushes it. And he's so happy. He sees her start to come alive and be herself and have her own pursuit that brings her joy again. And what happens, she does so well that Guns N' Roses asks her to open up for them. But
0: at this same time, Will Smith has brought Jaden in to do The Pursuit of Happiness, which is something that he asked to do. He wanted to do it. He being Jaden. Jaden wanted to become an actor and be in this movie with his dad because they're now juggling a child's career too. Guns N' Roses goes on the road without her.
1: Jaden and I had agreed early in our marriage that we would never work at the same time. One of us would always have to be available full-time to the children. At the time, I felt like Jada had options. We had mom, mom, and Gammy, and I was going to be there every step of the way. Jada and I would be sharing a trailer. All his scenes were with me. In retrospect, I can see the truth. Jada was faced with a horrific reality, and there was no version of her leaving her six-year-old son without his mother on his first movie gig. Jada turned down Guns and Roses. She can't have anything. He picked the career of a six-year-old child over the career of adult woman. And the fact that Will doesn't see this as a problem, like, breaks my heart. Then Jaden
0: gets the opportunity to do The Karate Kid, which is going to be filming in Beijing for three months. And, of course, we have another son here, Trey. Trey is a star football player. Will takes so much pride in the fact that every Friday night, they are at Trey's high school games. When Jaden gets the opportunity to shoot The Karate Kid, they were like, okay, well, that's the whole football season. It's happening simultaneously. How the fuck are we gonna have Jaden be in a movie and still support Trey? Will makes the decision that every single weekend they will commute from Beijing back to Los Angeles to watch Trey's football games and then get back on a plane to be back to shoot on Monday. Jaden and I commuted 10 straight weeks, Beijing to Los Angeles and back, never missing a single one of Trey's games. I was loving life. I felt like a master. We were the picture of the perfect blended family. No one could believe what we were doing, not even us. This seems so, so imperfect to me. I can't even wrap my brain around it.
1: I cannot imagine thinking that you're being a successful parent by getting your nine-year-old to travel from Asia to LA twice a week, every week for 10 weeks and being like, how great of a dad am I? He truly does not know the difference between being good and being successful. Now we get on to, I think, the most damning chapter of it all. This chapter is called Mutiny for reference. This is when Willow's career takes off. I grew up working in daddy O's shop. It struck me as normal that kids should do what their parents do. He's like, listen, if your kid loves to sing, you're going to help them out. The difference is that most dads would put their kids in the church choir or maybe sign her up for a voice lesson or two. I'm not that kind of dad. My mindset at the time was there is no reason to do anything unless you're prepared to take a shot at being the best on earth. My belief was you should always be aiming at the pinnacle, always striving for the very top of the mountain. Nothing should be done half-heartedly. This is an 11-year-old.
0: If your belief is that nothing should be done half-heartedly, then you would have made her wait till she was 18 years old and she could do it to the best of her ability. And you would have put her in training now. You would have had her like in vocal training and like learning about music as a child. And then when she was older, she could have taken a shot at being the best on earth. An 11-year-old is not going to be the greatest singer that ever existed.
1: That being said, Whip My Hair Back and Forth was a jam, and it was huge. Totally. Maybe the best on earth. (laughs) Willow landed a 30-day European tour opening for Justin Bieber. Huge. The tour continued. Night after night, I watched her grow. Her voice seemed to be getting stronger. Her stage presence was coming alive, and she started to learn how to work a crowd. I felt like a genius. That to me is like one of the sicker lines in the book to look at the success of your child and be like, I'm a genius. Look at what I've created. You don't see your children as human beings, like exploring their talents and getting better for the sake of themselves. You see them as offshoots of your own success. So then she gets asked to extend to an
0: Australia leg of the tour. And he's like, yeah, duh, of course. And she's like, oh, no, I'm done.
1: Well, you're finished for a few days, sweetie, but you really just started. You have a few more weeks to go. No, daddy, I'm finished. Yes, for this part Bean, you made a promise to Mr. Jay-Z that you would do the whole album and more videos. No, daddy, you made a promise to Mr. Jay-Z. Honey, we promised together. And when you start something, you have to finish it. And then she goes, it doesn't matter to you that I'm done? He's basically like, no. So they go home and she shaves her head.
0: And he realizes in that moment, she had feelings. He's like, feelings never mattered to me. What matters is food, shelter, security, intelligence, strength, and productivity. I feel like one of those binaries that you were talking about earlier, the fact that these things have to exist in opposition to feelings
1: is so misguided. He's out in this journey of understanding that people have emotions and one day they're sitting at the kitchen. Willow says, Daddy has a picture of a family in his mind and it's not us. I mean, Willow is saying exactly what Cherie has said, which is you want to be perfect to the world and you are doing everything you can to keep this image of perfection outwardly showing to everybody you know we're not that image but even in this realization
0: he does not understand what anyone's saying he says i would walk through fire for the people i love i'm fully prepared to die for my family but no i haven't always focused on their feelings And he doesn't really admit very much fault in this. He's like, yeah, I guess I could have focused on feelings, but I was doing all these other things for them. Everything I do is for them. And it's like, but that's also just wholeheartedly not true. I was a master provider and protector. I was a world-class teacher, but I began to be able to perceive the subtle and not so subtle emotional injuries of their childhoods. I don't actually think he ever did understand the emotional injuries of their childhoods.
1: And this is when Tri says, Dad, what do you worship? Will says, I worship God. And Trey goes, are you sure? And Will's like, yeah, you don't know anything. You barely have read the Bible. Shut up. It's an interesting question, because if you think about the way that he thinks everybody should fall in line with what he thinks, and if they just live in accordance to his law, he will give them like a good and bountiful life. He thinks he's God. He doesn't worship anybody because everybody should worship him.
0: And what he decides to do is absolutely unhinged. He's like, in order to fix my family, we need a project. So he just does another movie with Jaden. This one absolutely bombs because he's like, I'm not going to be hard on him. I want him to have a fun time. I want it to be a comfortable experience. It's called After Earth and everyone hates the movie and blames it on Jaden. They're like, Jaden sucked in this movie. And Will's like, oh, it's because I made things comfortable.
1: You could either worry about how people feel or you could win, but you have to pick one. I find it interesting that he talks about this bomb that Jaden was in because he decided to be nice for once when he never brings up his personal bombs it goes so badly that Jaden ends up trying to emancipate himself from his father after the film.
0: I want to read that in conjunction with this line. In terms of my relationship with Jaden, the filming was perfection. When I would come on set on The Karate Kid, Jaden would deflate and lose his energy. It was as if his enemy had arrived. I was the person who was going to push him to make him do another take to extend the movie to shoot another month in China because I wasn't happy with the scene. But on After Earth, I didn't allow the production to go one minute beyond the allotted shooting schedule. I was his protector. What? You're saying your son hated you and feared you. So then you put him to work again. This time he liked you, but still wanted to be emancipated.
1: I also find it interesting that he says Cherie was the beginnings of the issues between him and Trey because he wasn't allowed to raise Trey how he wanted to. He raised Jaden exactly how he wanted to. And that kid still wanted it legally out of the family. As a trifecta of his narcissism, we get a truly unhinged story about Jada's 40th birthday party, which she started planning at her 37th birthday party. And it was a three-day weekend-long affair where, again, he rented out an entire hotel flew out all their friends and surprised her with this insane over-the-top birthday party that he said got bigger and bigger as the nights progressed. Night one was 20 people, which was small enough for her, but big enough for me.
0: Okay, this is her birthday party weekend. And you're like, I recognize she wanted a small, intimate
1: gathering. The second night, it doubles in size. There's more events and it ends with this movie he had spent all this time making. He made a documentary about Jada's history and her family. And he says the entire time, everybody's like in tears. Everybody's overwhelmed. They can't believe what a great husband he is. All the wives are going, God, I want a Will Smith husband, blah, 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 blah. They get back to the hotel room. She goes, cancel everything tomorrow. That was the most disgusting display of ego I have ever seen in my life. He goes, ego, ego, you are the most ungrateful. I ain't never doing shit for you ever again.
0: I mean, he says, after the first night, I was the perfect husband, and they didn't even realize I was just getting started. And meanwhile, he notices that Jada's is not really speaking. He's like, she is so disconnected from this event. Anyway, I'm doing so good. And it's like, well, it's her birthday party, and she doesn't seem to be having fun.
1: He finally goes, our marriage wasn't working. I retire, I said. I retire from trying to make you happy. You are free. You need to go make yourself happy and prove to me that it's even possible. But I quit. You go and do you.
0: He did not even try to make her happy. He knows what makes her happy. Small, intimate gatherings, being with the people she loves, a game of Monopoly where no one's trying to oust anybody else from the game. I don't know anything about Jada except what I've read in this book and like one episode of The Red Table Talks, and I know what makes her happy.
1: He goes, We agreed that Jada's happiness had to be her responsibility and my happiness had to be my responsibility. We were going to seek our distinct, innermost, personal joys, and then we were going to return and present ourselves to our relationship and to each other already happy. Not coming to each other begging with empty cups, demanding that the other person fulfill our needs. To place the responsibility of your happiness on anybody other than yourself is a recipe for misery. I don't think it's that she's asking you for happiness. It's that you've stood in the way of her happiness and not listened. She has said over and over again, in this book even, I have nothing in our life that's just mine. And every time she tries to find something that's hers, you come in and prioritize other people above her and stop her from finding happiness. And then to be like, well, it's your responsibility to be happy. No, her responsibility is the two minors that you have given birth to.
0: I mean, what about this line? Whether a person is happy or not is utterly out of your control. I mean, that is literally not true. You cannot force someone to be happy. But if you know what someone likes, doing a nice thing for someone is not actually that hard if you know them at all. Okay,
1: so now we have to go to the next chapter because... I'm losing my mind.
0: So he decides he needs to go to Trinidad to get in touch with himself. He realizes he spends every minute working. He calls up... Remember our gal, Tanya, the one that he used and threw away? She has this cool-ass husband who is just a vibe. And he's like, I want to go with Scotty to Trinidad. She goes, today is Thanksgiving. He goes, well, you guys can eat. But then Thursday night, we're flying out. They go to Trinidad... I mean, what's he even looking for? Because all he is is mad at first.
1: He's mad that they don't have transportation handled. He's mad that there's no security. He shows up at somebody's house. He's like, I just have to sleep at your house. He ends up having the best life of his life. The next day they go out on a boat and he goes, well, what's the plan? And they're like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, are there going to be jet skis? Are we going to go snorkeling? Are we going to go exploring? Like, what's the plan for the day? And he's like, I don't know, dude. I'm just out here with my grandkids. We're just fucking eating mangoes and swimming and having a good time on the boat. This is the day. Hang out and." Will is pissed. And he's like, how dare you take me out here? I'm a superstar. And it's like, bitch, you called this man up and demanded he end his Thanksgiving so that you could live like a normal person and now you're mad that he didn't plan excursions for you. This is not carnival cruises. So then he starts
0: to get in touch with himself. He's afraid of swimming. But he gets in the ocean to realign with the earth. He, like, is looking for a greater purpose in everything, and that greater purpose isn't just, like, calm and happiness. He doesn't once look around and be like, oh, this guy came out to Trinidad and, like, has all these people that he's so happy to see, and he's happy just, like, sitting and chatting with a friend. He sees it as, oh, he's aligning with the earth because he's sitting in the ocean.
1: So he finally realizes that he's an addict. He's a workaholic, and he's scared of ever listening to his own thoughts and being alone. So then
0: he has a friend who went on a silent retreat, and he's like, I'm just, going to do my own silent retreat my friend did 10 days and because I need to be better than him at unwinding I'm going to do 14 days
1: so he goes to his estate in Utah and is just alone for 14 days And suddenly it dawns on him. If I don't want to be with me, why the fuck would anybody else want to be with me? So then he starts going to therapy. He meets up with this woman named Michaela Bohm. And she's like, what would make you happy? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm Will Smith. I live the greatest life in the whole world. And she's like, okay, but are you happy? And he's like, what is, what, huh? Huh?" (laughs) And then she goes, if you could have anything, what do you want? And he goes, a harem. Which is interesting because at the beginning of the book, he makes that point of being like, my dreams aren't orgies. My dreams are one lady. And so then she's like, okay, well, what do you want from that harem? And would you believe at the bottom of the harem, he realizes all he wants is acceptance from women and that, you know what? They can't give him acceptance. He has to accept himself and that his whole life, he's created two characters, Mr. Fluffy and Mr. Grumpy. Mr. Grumpy. (laughs) That's not what he calls it. (laughs)
0: Mr. Fluffy is the pleaser, and the general is the intense guy. They're constantly in conflict. He's always saying things to people to make them happy, but then the general is driving him to be the best.
1: But he has to figure out who Will is, and she's trying to help him realize that he needs to get in tune with his own self, so he's not always just striving for external validation, and he learns to just be happy with himself. And he's doing all this therapy, but what actually makes a difference... Ayahuasca. He goes on an ayahuasca trip. And on his very first trip, he enters the universe and he's in the most beautiful place he's ever seen in his whole life. And a woman is behind him and he's like, Where are we? And he goes, this isn't the universe. This is you. And he goes, I'm this beautiful. And she goes, and you always have been. And that's when he wakes up and realizes how beautiful he really is and how much he truly loves himself. And that's a huge breakthrough.
0: Also, I want to point out that he is very anti-drug. He does not believe in doing drugs at all. So it was a lot to get him to do ayahuasca. But after that one breakthrough where he finds out that he's beautiful, he does ayahuasca 14 times.
1: The book should have ended with the last chapter called Love, which is about when his dad dies and he's still filming Bright for Netflix. He flies home every weekend to watch his dad and he tells his dad, like, I love you. You did a really good job. He says, you need to know where a movie is supposed to end so that you can work towards the ending and have the most emotional impact. And at the end of this life, I realized what's really important. And I had to say, what a great place this book could have ended. And then
0: we get to the final chapter, The Jump. This chapter is about... Him and his 50th birthday party, where he decides he's gonna do a big stunt where he bungee jumps off of a helicopter into the Grand Canyon. And how afraid he is. Alfonso Ribeiro is hosting his YouTube video. They're interviewing all of his friends and family. And this is his big stunt about him facing his fears for his 50th birthday. And it's like, wow, this is really proof that you haven't learned anything about interpersonal relationships. Because your 50th birthday party is an enormous stunt for the world to see. And not a dinner with your
1: fucking family. There's such a warming moment in the penultimate chapter. And then he has this really hacky, stupid sitcom type ending.
0: This book should be about how achieving greatness for the world isn't what matters. It's about the personal relationships in your life and being there for the people around you. That is the lesson that I thought we were trying to learn this whole time. But instead, in the end, he's like, anyway, I'm going to do this crazy stunt for YouTube. And my family has to watch and it could go horribly wrong. And literally the only goal here is to prove that I can do cool shit and I could literally die in front of my whole family. Ashley. Yes, Claire. What did
1: you think of Will? I
0: will say I love Will Smith's movies, and I am heartbroken to continue learning things about him. It sucks. I wish I didn't know a single thing about him. I just wish he was the man in black. Claire, what do you think about Will?
1: I was reading it, and I really liked it about 200 250 pages and you kept saying he's a psychopath and I kept being like ashley's being too hard on him I think it's an actually really interesting picture of what it takes to be the best at something And it's a really good look into like why nobody should really want to be the best at anything It's such a meaningless life. I can't think of anything more meaningless Than his pursuit of being the greatest. I really think this is a book about how being the
0: best is lonely and Worthless because I don't think that in his success he achieved anything that the 80th best couldn't have
1: my question is this and I think about John McEnroe's book I think about his book is it the fact that you don't care about people that allows you to become the successful or is it on the journey of becoming this successful that you forget to care about people because you're taught you don't have to that's my question that's a really good question he's such a fucking liar to say it's all for his family because they were never gonna not eat tomorrow Anyway, Ashley. Yeah, Claire. To you, I say, Merry Christmas. I'm gonna miss you so much. We're separating for the holidays and I'm gonna miss the shit out of you. Oh, I miss you so much already. I cannot wait to check in with you on the Patreon this week. Don't forget to follow the Patreon. You guys, the wormhole is popping. It is so fun. As always, check out the merch and Merry Christmas, everybody. Even if you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you have a really happy holiday. There is one more episode coming out this year. Yeah, we're gonna do one more
0: episode this year. And then we're gonna take a break the first week of the new year. But we love you so much. And thank you so much to our five star reviewers. I adore you. Thank you so much to the most beautiful five-star reviewers on the entire planet. Sam and Kiki, I dream of a love like yours. Maggie, 62728292. Thank you so much for that secret passcode. Elise, yay. Yay, thank you for this motherfucking review. Flourish and decay. Well, on my watch, I hope you only flourish. Kamea, Thank you, Maya. I say? I think you're the best. Dash, 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 G-H-E, dash, dash, dash. Let me tell you what, I appreciate this review in a flash. And 557 five, thanks for a review as beautiful as Jolie. Ashley Sterling, 91, nothing but respect and love for another Ashley. Kayla Face, thank you for bringing your beautiful face over here. Cara Amazing, you are downright fucking amazing. Ryan Briggsy. thank you for Briggs in this great review over here. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you endlessly and I love you and I can't wait to see you next week.